DIY and How Studios presents Deeper Digs in Rock, part of the Rock and Roll Archaeology Project. Music, culture, technology, and rock and roll. Now, on with the show. Hello again, fellow diggers. Welcome to Deeper Digs in Rock, a production of the Rock and Roll Archaeology Project. I'm Christian Swain, and I'm behind the mic in San Francisco. As the name suggests, Deeper Digs in Rock goes a little deeper and digging into diverse topics, all connected to rock music in their own unique way. Won't you please subscribe, rate, and review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your favorite podcasts? It means a lot to us if you do. Now, if you really love the Rock and Roll Archaeology Project and all the stuff we're doing, then won't you kindly consider supporting the project financially? We have links to Patreon and PayPal at our website, rockandrollarchaeology.com. Finally, we have two new shows. We sincerely hope you will listen to Andy King and Real Rock. It's Rock and Roll Movies. And for the audio file out there, we have Vinyl Snob with host Dave Whitaker. We think they're great additions to our growing network of rock and roll podcasts. Please let us know what you think. Okay, business handled. We go off Broadway today for something really special. different characters. But what happens when one of these persona take over? And it plays all the way out to the furthest possible extremes, and the character ends up killing the man. These questions and more are explored in a new theatrical production, Keith Moon, The Real Me, written and performed by our special guest today, Mick Berry. The show was 12 years in the making, according to Mick. He obtained the permission to use the songs from the maestro himself, Pete Townsend, and the musical director is Frank Symes. As for McBerry, he is an accomplished drummer, actor, and comedian, considered a rising star in the Bay Area theater circles. Uh, sounds promising, um, but the play's the thing, no? Uh, does he pull it off? I will render my verdict after the interview. For now, uh, let's just finish setting it up. On August 11, 2017, Keith Moon, The Real Me, debuted at the Marin Theater Company in Mill Valley, just north of San Francisco. Word got to us here at the Rock and Roll Archaeology Project. So, I saw a Saturday Madday performance, and Mick was kind enough to sit down for a long chat afterwards. Let's listen to that discussion, and as promised, your humble host will render an opinion afterwards. Welcome to Deeper Digs and Rock, Mick Berry. Hey, thanks. How it's you doing a, today? Uh, it's a great day. What now, can I say? I'm, we we yeah. just sat and watched your show, Keith Moon, The Real Me. And uh, I think this is just starting its run here uh, at yeah. the Marin Theater. We're finishing in. up the first week. We opened last Sunday because the Who were in town. We thought we're going to open the day that the Who perform. That's it. Yeah. Easy decision to make. Sounds, sounds like <laughs> it makes a lot of sense, right? Yeah. So let's start with why did you decide to tell the story of, of Keith Moon? Why, why did you think that was an important story well, to tell? 
Well, I did three other one-man shows, and I got a hold of Tony Fletcher's book, Keith Moon. Yeah, Dear Life Boy. Life and Death right. of a Rock Legend. Yeah. yeah. And I, was, I read it once, and then I started reading it again. And a friend of mine that had done stand-up comedy with me said, look, all you're doing is spending your time reading this book. You should do a one-man show about Keith Moon. And I thought, you're crazy. No, it can't be done. And he said, why not? He said, you look enough like him, you could do it. I said, yeah, but you know how nuts he was, how crazy he was? He said, so what? All you're doing is spending all your time reading about him. Why not do a show about him? So I started working on it and uh, started failing in every way possible, you know, and just writing and rewriting and rewriting and trying to find a director to work with me and seeing where I could get. That was over 12 years ago. So you started this 12 years ago. Yeah, 12 years ago. Well, let's go yeah. back even further. Let's talk a little bit about McBerry first. Yeah. So are, are you you're, you're uh, from California? Is that, uh, is that the New case? Orleans. From New Orleans. Yeah. Oh, I okay. Moved to, moved to San Francisco in 86. I'm originally from New Orleans. And the Who are, hands down, my favorite rock band as... Uh, the Rolling Stones said after Keith Moon died, he wasn't the best drummer in rock and roll. He was the only one. I'll say that about the Who. They're not the best band in rock and roll. They're the only one. Wow. Okay, you're a serious <laughs> fan then. So you grew up on music. You grew up on the Who. You yeah. actually are a drummer first, right? Right. I didn't start playing until I was 13. Begged my parents from the age of three when I first saw a drum set. I wanted to play them. And they just thought, ah, nah, 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 nah. Finally, when I was 13, my dad said, you want to play drums, you can play drums if you work for me for the summer and buy them yourself. Okay. <laughs> Buck 65 an hour, slinging yeah. ice bags. He owned an ice company. Okay. So I saved Very $300, important in $330 yeah. and bought a drum set. Oh, what was your first drum it set? It was actually a premier drum set. Was which it? It was a British drum set. Yeah, yeah, that yeah, premier. Just that's, coincidentally. Yeah. Oh, wow, that's pretty yeah. cool. Yeah. And how old were you when that, uh, was that? Oh, you said 13. Yeah, yeah 13. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, and I didn't, I'd heard The Who, but when I was 16... Quadrophenia came out and then I started hearing Won't Get Fooled Again on the radio and I told friends oh this is a, a new song from Quadrophenia they said no no it's from an album before that but then I heard Bellboy which is Keith Moon's theme song in which he sings I've got a good job and I'm newly born yeah right um, I gotta get running I heard Bellboy and I just went what is that <laughs> oh my god what is that that's from Quadrophenia sold I got Quadrophenia a friend of mine gave me Who's Next. I listened to Won't Get Fooled Again. It took about two to three weeks, and they were my favorite rock band, and it's been that way ever since. That's usually what happens to the Who's fans. The majority of their fans, they get a lot of female fans, but the majority of their fans are 16-year-old boys. They latch on when they're 16, and as Pete said, they keep them. They yes. keep them for life. Yeah. You they know? stay 16 forever. Yeah, right. Yeah. <laughs> right, right. Which obviously happened to you. So yeah. Now, yeah. you then uh, decide to take uh, your drumming serious. You become yeah. a professional drummer, and then you go to Berkeley School of Music for a while. Well, right? that happened first. And, you know, you try to... Well, I started making money when I was, like, 16 or so, yeah, just playing yeah. gigs here Yeah, same there. here, yeah. Yeah, but then um, I played with briefly spiral staircase if you want some rock history you might not know him by name but when i played with him their big hit song was number 16 of all top 40 hits at the time it was bigger than a lot of the beatles i love you more today than yesterday but not as much as tomorrow oh, yeah. yeah spiral staircase i played with them very briefly oh you did and then i played with several other bands and uh toured around the country playing ski resorts and holiday inns and hotels wherever you can yeah. make a living yeah. right yeah, yeah definitely now you're not just uh, a a drummer you're also a, a comedian and an actor yeah. too right yeah. were you was that always the case where um, you know did you did you grow up with that no, as well no i uh, i started doing acting in college and then uh, really then pursued acting and uh bounced back and forth between music and acting and then started stand-up comedy when I came to San Francisco after 10 years of stand-up then I started doing one-man shows and playing drumming doing one-man shows and stand-up and make trying to make a living one way or another 
when I was in my early 40s, I had a friend I played music with who was a publisher who said, we need to write a drumming book about every drum style. You could do it. And so in my early 40s, I thought I got to do something to establish myself in some way. So I wrote, it took three years, I wrote The Drummer's Bible, how to play every drum style from Afro-Cuban to Zydeco with uh, Jason uh, Gianni. Jason right? Gianni, yeah. very good. You've done your research. <laughs> Thank you. Many don't. I'm impressed. Oh. Yeah, yeah. So you're 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 uh, a musician. You are an actor, a comedian, a playwright, and an author. Yeah. Geez, I, I believe that's uh, is, is what, what's the award that uh, that you, you keep, win? You, you win yeah, all five rena- of them. Renaissance. Uh, <laughs> yeah, Renaissance man. You just you keep trying. Yeah. You know, but it was the drumming book that put me over to the top, over the top, to where I was making a full time living with no worries. Mm-hmm. Uh, by about the, once the book came out, it took three years. Once the book came out, within about a year, I started getting enough students and enough drumming work to where I didn't have to call up friends every couple of months and say, I need to make rent. Can you pay me 100 bucks to help you paint a house tomorrow? Yeah. I, now, I looked a little bit at this. This is a big book. This is not just a, you know, a, a, a kind of a lessons of drumming. It's, yeah. it's uh, We've got uh, styles everything in there. and things like yeah, that. So the, give, me, give me a quick synopsis. Otherwise, we could be here all well, day talking yeah, about Yeah. Uh, every drum style from Afro-Cuban to Zydeco, A yeah. to Z. The Afro-Cuban chapter alone is, I I think it's like 23 pages. It could be a book in itself. And we researched it heavily. The, um, the country chapter, there's a guy named Brian Fullen. I wanted to get help from every drummer because I know how to play, but I wanted to get the experts on each style. And I thought, country, what do you do? Mm-hmm. Most people think it's real simple. I called up. Nashville uh, back then. Um, the now the genius uh, is making it sound simple. Yeah, but um, I called up a Nashville. Uh, what do you call it? Four one one information. Oh, mm-hmm. I said, give me the top music store in town. She gave me music store. I called him up. I said, who's the number one country drummer in town? He said, you want to talk to Brian Fullen? He teaches Vanderbilt. He records all over town. I talked to him. He said, oh well, I wrote a country book. Let me send you a copy. Use whatever you want from it. Okay, there you go. I said, no problem with plagiarism. No, no, just spread the word. I want to get the word out there. We need people to know how to do this. And he and several other people, David Garibaldi, Mike Clark, who played with Herbie Hancock, all these expert drummers came on board, filled me in, and uh, the book has sold over 22,000 copies now. Wow, congratulations. Yeah, Yeah, Yeah. thanks. Yeah, and uh, originally I think it came out in 2003. Is that right? That sounds... That sounds I about believe right. It's in its yeah, sixth that printing, sounds yeah. about right. Yeah, I think so. Yeah, yeah. that's yeah. pretty wild. That's yeah. pretty wild. So, yeah. all right. So let's get to uh, you know this. Uh, I think this is the second run of Keith Moon. Right, the Real I did it four Me, years ago in 2013. Yeah. Right in San Francisco. Very good again. Yeah. So, yeah, it didn't have the bite I wanted before. I wanted to really get it the blood and guts of Keith and what drove him, what drove him crazy, what made him want to drum what it was that he was struggling with, really get down to his demons and also find something that was a commonality between Keith and everybody so that it's something everybody can relate to. Mm. And it's the theme of really playing up to people's idea, what you think people want you to be, even at the your own demise. Because mm-hmm. that's really what Keith did. You know, he lived up to this reputation of Moon the Loon that he felt he had to to fulfill everybody's expectations. Well, similar to Pete in the Auto Destruction, uh, that he felt that he had to continue to do until, of course, Jimi Hendrix came along and started doing it better. Right. And, uh, you know, and look what happened to him. So, you know, uh, but Keith, yeah, had a character, and this character made him famous and made him rich, and he felt that he had to just be that character 24 7 because, you know, rock and roll is about authenticity. Authenticity. It's not. It's not something yeah. you can just turn off at the yeah. end of the show, like right. you do at the yeah. end uh, when the when the lights go down. And right? um, I think it was Alice Cooper or might have been Howard Kalen of Flo and Eddie who said, if you had gone to Keith Moon when he was right in the midst of just being Moon the Loon in like 1972, and you said, Keith, you've got to slow down. You're burning yourself out. He would have looked at you and said, What are you crazy? I'm Keith Moon. Yeah. Yeah. You know, he wouldn't have stopped. And he didn't. He 
he near the end of his life he was seeing he had to clean up and seeing the possibility of gee maybe I don't have to keep this up maybe I can well, just I, run for I, the I think the other three were kind of trying to push that along certainly yeah. Roger and, and, and Pete, Pete. I, yeah. I know he and John were quite the party buddies uh, yeah. together yeah. and uh, they kept each other well entertained uh, <laughs> yeah. while the other two were a little bit more teetotalers yeah. uh, especially yeah. now they're complete teetotalers yeah. Yeah. Now, so. yeah. but yeah that, uh, that was tough and uh, uh, you know, I remember the day in '78 when you know you heard the news that uh, yeah, that Keith yeah, he was trying that. to clean up. It mm-hmm. was a drug to yeah, it was actually yeah, the, yeah. the drug to help stop alcoholism, yeah, uh, prevent is, seizures. Yeah. But you can but imagine he, took, he overtook the overdose. He took yeah, too many of them, um, so. and you can imagine how far gone he was. Mm-hmm. With alcoholism, if you when you withdraw from it, you could have seizures. My God, that's yeah. I mean, I know people that have stopped, but they didn't get to that point. Yeah. you know, where their yeah. body is just physically dependent on the booze. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But let's let's talk a, bit, a little bit about Keith's drumming style because it is unique. Yeah, especially with the British Invasion guys. Right, very separate. And you make yeah. a big point of that in the play, uh, as opposed to say something that Ringo would do or Charlie Watts. <laughs> in fact, I think you call out Charlie Watts. Yeah, oh yeah. Well, mainly and you run the Rolling mainly Stones, Mick Jagger and Keith Richards because they write that same song over and over. Yeah. Okay. Now they're great. And their songs are catchy, and they know how to write a hook. And for God's sake, look what they've done. They've got this 50. The they started has in worked 62. Out pretty they damn were 18 good. and 19. Yeah. <laughs> so 55 years. Yeah. Incredible. Yeah. But the drumming isn't that special. I, I, I will it's, say, I saw Shine a Light. I'm watching Charlie Watts. I'm going, okay, there's a reason he's, he's Charlie a, yeah. Watts with the Rolling Stones. I can't do that. Oh, he knows how to do, put in the nuances. Great, wonderful, beautiful job, Charlie. But you can take more or less the same beat and put it in a lot of their hits. Oh, true, true. It's you a know? clock. It's about yeah, being a yeah, clock. Ringo, yeah. very much the yeah. same sort of yeah. thing. Whereas yeah. Keith, it's about filling every fucking space yeah. that yeah. is available. Yeah. And, and I like the idea that, you know, uh, like Charlie, Charlie did this as well. Charlie didn't follow Bill. He followed Keith. Keith... Uh-huh. Didn't follow John. He followed Pete, Pete yeah. which is a, a very interesting way of drumming because usually it's the rhythm section that hooks up together, and that right. is an unusual thing. Yeah, so. the thing about Keith that people do not re- there are a couple things about him people don't realize. No one would ever accuse him of being sensitive. Mm-mm. He was incredibly sensitive to Roger's lyrics. Anybody listening to this, check out any song by The Who. When Roger sings, Pete Pulls Keith back a little bit. backs off. Mm-hmm. He gets out of the way. But if Roger gives him a crack, <laughs> it's filled up. Yeah. And the thing is, I played in a Who tribute band. Roger is so good as a singer, people don't realize how hard it is to sing these songs and to phrase. You know, Pete gives Roger these songs, and Roger comes up with the phrasing, out here in the fields. I fight for my... Now, he could have sung, out here in the fields, I fight... No. No, he gave the space in between the two lines. He knew how to phrase these songs Mm -hmm. and just phrase it in the best way possible. And when there's a space, even in something like, I gladly lose me to find you, I gladly give... There's just a little bit of a space there for Keith to play in. He goes for it. He does it. He is tuned in to Roger and fills this up with the coolest fills and just this thing that is just driving this song, you know? And the way Pete wrote, it's like he wrote for Keith to drum into these songs and Keith just made these songs come alive in ways that you can't imagine. I've seen, Mitch Mitchell was a great drummer, great drummer, incredible for Jimi Hendrix, so good that when Jimi Hendrix replaced him, he had to bring him back because Buddy Miles, okay, all right, buddy, great drummer, but Mitch Mitchell worked better for him. If you listen to Fire, you listen to Manic Depression, those songs are featuring the drums. Jimi Hendrix was smart enough to know I can write this song for a drummer. But you look at Mitch Mitchell's drumming on paper and you go, yeah, I've seen that. There's a Rattamacue. Ooh, there's a Paradiddle Diddle. Ah, there's a Flamadiddle. Brilliant use of these rudiments, Mitch. Great, great training. You're really making this come alive. Wow, I'm impressed. But you look at Keith's stuff on paper, you go, What? He's hitting the high tom <laughs> what? and the snare drum 
at the same time and then he hits the cymbal on the and and he comes back and he hits the snare drum and the floor tom at the same time and then he'll come in with one eighth note on the floor tom and hit the cymbal on an and and I've never seen that before. Why is he doing that? And then you sit down, you play it, you go, oh my God, it sounds incredible. Mm-hmm. It's, and he also, he played completely by instinct. He did take lessons from Carlo Little for about six months, but his musical instincts were incredible. He played a lot, but one thing he did just technically was he would play the ands rather than the beats. He would accent the and Okay? It would be all his accents would be off the beat, so it would lift the music rather than It wasn't on the beat, it was off the beat, around the beat, and it was real powerful and it would lift the song and take the song, it would keep it suspended and it wouldn't great on the listener's ear it would take it to places you wouldn't expect it to go he had the technicality to do it and he had such brilliant ideas that he would come up with like that he would create hooks or riffs as you bring up in the show that you know when Pete would open up that uh, that spot and he would fill it with something uh, uh, that was memorable that people then could take away and just as a a, a lyrical hook or a guitar riff and one of the greatest examples of that was I can see for miles the drumming in that song it's it's so wonderful but it's so unorthodox the chorus he's playing during the chorus he's playing a fill for the entire chorus why would anybody do that it, it makes no sense, and it sounds fantastic. <laughs> yeah. Well, yeah. you had, you know, uh, John Entwistle, who was kind of the rock of the yeah. band, and everybody yeah. bounced off of, uh, uh-huh. of him. So he was always there to hold that solid, which allowed Keith to kind yeah. of play around in between, uh-huh. which is unusual because usually yeah. it's the opposite way yeah. uh, in, in a standard yeah. rock and, band. And Entwistle so. was such an amazing musician, you know. People don't think about this on Quadrophenia, all horns played by John Entwistle, you know? Mm. On Tommy, horns, John Entwistle. Mm. He didn't just play bass. He was such an accomplished musician. And Pictures of Lily. Yeah, and I got it from the Who's Musical Director. That's actually a mellophone. It sounds like a French horn. Yeah, that's Frank Symes, by the way. Yeah, Frank Symes. We'll talk about Frank in a minute. And uh, a mellophone was like a French horn for marching because it had a bell that stuck straight out. So it sounded like a French horn, but it was for marching, so you could hear it straight out. And Entwistle played a mellophone on Tommy. It sounds like a French horn. And he plays a French horn on Pictures of Lily. Uh They put in a French horn solo, which is really crazy. (laughs) It's like 1966 or 67. Yeah, that's when the Beatles are adding all those horns and things like that. And everybody's listening to the Beatles. Rock song. So, yeah. Yeah. Very cool. Um, cool. And another thing about Keith, I talked to Simon Phillips, who played their 25th anniversary of Tommy. Mm. And I was talking with him about okay, how do I go after this here? What do I do? He said, well, there are going to be some licks you definitely want to copy. He said, I copied one of them on Tommy on, um, I think it's Amazing Journey. He said, that just sounded too great. I had to use it and steal it. But he said, apart from the signature licks, find yourself what works well. Because if you only go for copying Keith, you're going to always be second best. Keith didn't try to copy anybody. So you start experimenting and you see what sounds good that you discover. Mm Because that's how Keith came up with it on his own and he said nine times out of ten you're going to be playing licks that Keith Moon played but you're going to find them yourself rather than just copying them copy the signature the ones com- the iconic ones but, you have to yeah. other than but that, then yes. start experimenting yourself and see what sounds good for you because that's what's going to really work in these songs and a lot of those are going to be what Keith played or if they weren't they're going to be something Keith would have played if he had gotten gone in that direction mm-hmm. um, but Simon told me people don't think of Keith Moon as a timekeeper okay but his timekeeping was actually impeccable because Simon told me on Baba O'Reilly when he's getting ready to go out on tour with the Who he wanted to practice to Baba O'Reilly he's at Pete's house and 
Pete says, well, the tapes are over there. Go and listen to them. And he turns on one of these tapes, and there's a cowbell. And he says to Pete, well, there's a cowbell on this one. Oh, yeah, well, Kenny Jones used that to play along to Bob O'Reilly. Oh, okay. Uh, what else have you got? Well, you want to hear the one Keith played to? Sure. It's this one over here. So he listens to it, and he realizes it's the original loop. It isn't a copy. It's not second generation or third generation. He's listened to the original it's synthesizer stand, so, loop right. of Bob O'Reilly. And this is the one Keith played to. Yes, that's what he used. No cowbell, no, no click metronome, track, so, no metronome. Yeah. He just played to the synthesizer. The loop, right. And Simon Phillips, who is arguably one of the greatest living drummers, said to Pete, I want a click track. Said, okay, <laughs> well, we'll make a copy and put a click track on it. But yeah. Simon told me, Keith played without a click track yeah. to it. And he said, All if feel. you listen to it, yeah. some, there's one spot where people think Keith sped up a little bit. But he said, I heard the synthesizer, and the synthesizer speeds up, and Keith plays with it, and then he slows back down. He was incredibly tuned in mm. musically to what was going on around him. People don't realize this. When you start dissecting it, it's ridiculous how gifted he was as a musician. Oh, I don't think there's yeah. a doubt in that. Yeah. I mean, everybody in that band's pretty yeah. gifted yeah. in the end, yeah. Yeah. Uh, in their own unique way. You know, they yeah. had to learn. They had to put in their 10,000 hours, what have yeah. you. But uh, all of them got there. You know, they yeah. start off as a mod band and, uh, and then gravitate into the change of rock and roll and, <coughs> and went right. very, very far. And Roger them, so. said he could see their evolution week by week because mm -hmm. they were playing five or six nights a week. Yeah. And That's they were right. experimenting all the time and jamming. And that's the thing about and the Who. five shows a day. In New York, out, yeah, yeah, Murray yeah, the K, five yeah, shows yeah. a day, yeah. And um, they were constantly experimenting. Roger said every week he saw it growing into something. Mm -hmm. And the thing that I think, one of the best clips that captures the Who is them at Woodstock in the movie Woodstock. Yeah. Uh, the energy coming out of that band. And they were not even six months from Tommy being released. It came mm -hmm. out in April and it was in August. No, uh, yeah, I, I think it was one of the first shows that they, they ever been, performed, they, they Tommy. Been, I think they've been performing, I could be mistaken, they've been performing it for like four months, three mm -hmm. or four months. And they were just starting to get it under their belt. So it's fresh. It wasn't something they'd been doing for a couple of years. They're really behind it emotionally. And boy, they just play the hell out of it. You, you're watching Pete with his windmills and Keith and Roger and John. No, it's one of the great performances yeah, yeah. of uh, the Woodstock. Well, and uh, I quoted uh, in the show, Roger said before Woodstock, the Who were a very successful cult band. With Woodstock, Woodstock cemented them into the history of rock and roll. Oh, without doubt. Yeah. Yeah. I yeah. mean, Tommy... Yeah, the the rock opera Tommy, which you make yeah. fun of the the name uh, a rock opera. Yeah, uh, right. but it is it's uh, <laughs> it is quite right. the thing. We've done several things on Tommy. We uh, ended up uh, doing a uh, deeper digs in rock on a bluegrass band called the Hillbillies. Yeah, yeah. Peter who, told me who about did that. that. Yeah, yeah. And they they collaborated they, with Peter. Talked they did. To Pete yeah, about they talked it. to yeah. Pete about it and uh, and put it together. And I mean, I I, I was. I'm not a big bluegrass fan, but I couldn't oh, well, believe how amazing it was. Incredible. It was it was really really. Well, fun. one thing about bluegrass musicians, they can play. Oh yeah, as uh, more yeah. rock history. It's like John, heavy metal for uh, yeah. for uh, for country. You yeah, know? <laughs> as John Sebastian said, right? This is it far exceeds this now, but 1,352 guitar pickers in Nashville. Right now, what are there? 100, one, 132,000 guitar yeah, pickers in Nashville. Yeah, yeah. And every one of them can pick more notes than the number of ants on the Tennessee anthill. Yeah. they. Uh, um, so any bluegrass group doing Tommy, I got to check it out. I'm oh, sure it was brilliant. really worth it. I, I, we're hoping yeah. they'll be back for uh, Hardly Strictly. Uh, yeah. Bluegrass here in San Francisco. Did they do it at Hardly Strictly? They did, they oh did last year. Yeah. 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 So, oh, my yeah. God. I'm so sorry I missed yeah. it. Thank we'll, you, Amy. We'll, Thanks. We'll make sure you're there. God. Okay. So you're obviously this huge Who fan yeah. uh, and have been your whole life. Uh, and you decide to put a, a one-man show together. So yeah. talk about the inspiration and how it came about it. The, you know, the, the Moon's story is certainly something to talk yeah. about. You know, he is definitely a larger-than-life character uh, in the annals of rock and roll. But, you know, you went deeper. You, you went into 
you know who he was. Obviously, we talked a little bit about Dear Boy, yeah. uh, the the book, and yeah. th- that that was a big inspiration. And Tony Fletcher was very helpful, actually, because when I started putting this together, I knew, God, I got to get these songs. How do I get permission to use these songs? Well, let me talk to Tony Fletcher because he's interviewing everybody in that book. And I said to him, "What do I do?" And he said, "Well, I contact Pete Townsend because they're his songs." Because I think I called the publishing company and they told me no dice. And, of course, oh, okay, yeah, yeah. They're, right. they're paid to say no. Yes. <laughs> yeah, and so he, I said, "Really?" He said, "Yeah, they're his songs. If he tells you you can use them, you can use them." I said, "Well, what? I, how do I reach him?" He said, "Well, you want his uh, personal assistance email? Here it is." Oh, mm. uh, 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 okay. So I I sent really it's this easy. <laughs> I sent an email, and he gave me great advice. For anybody, this is good advice for any human being. I said, how did you get all these celebrities for your book? He said, politeness and intelligence will get you everywhere. Yes, and perseverance. Yeah, yeah, and perseverance. But but I thought, okay, now that I can do. Uh, All right. Okay, cool. So I sent an email to... His personal assistant. I'm well not going to say, I'm not gonna say her name. I'm not sure sure she wants me to say her name. Yeah. And next thing I know, I get an email back. Pete wants to see the script. Oh God. Oh no. Oh. Oh no. What do I? Oh my God. So I called up somebody. To, I didn't have it formatted in standards. I, I got to make this presentable. I got some copyright person who said, "Oh well, you need to do this." To present a play, it needs to be in this format. You need to use courier font. That's a standard thing. And do this, do this, do this. In 24 hours, I got it all set up. I emailed her back. I said, where do I send it? And she said, send it here. And I sent it next day mail to England, which the best you can do is 72 hours. Mm. Um, or maybe 36. I don't know. Yeah, it would cost 72 bucks for a 36-hour mail. And I sent it off. Next thing I know... Uh, I'm tracing it, following it, and uh, his assistant says, well, Pete got the script. Two hours later, here's an email from Pete Townsend saying, I've read the script, first time I've heard the prawn joke, which is something that's no longer in the script. But I'll tell you the prawn joke later on. It's very funny. But Pete was saying that to verify. It was like two-thirds of the way through. And he said, if you want these songs, this is what you need to do. And he spelled it out. And he said, the man is an, an incredibly generous rock star. And he's, not, he's this way with Frank Symes, the musical director, has told me the times he's had with Pete. He, and he, there was a movie, Lambert Stamp. He was the same with those people. And he said, if you want it, this is what you need to do. Good luck. So, all right, let's get to work here. And I hired an entertainment lawyer. I followed all of this, the procedures, and it took a year and a half mm. to do. He laid it out. These are the steps. And I had to get permission from Mandy, Pete, Keith's daughter, to use the Keith Moon name. And she was also incredibly helpful. I, uh, I, I contacted her. She said, well, let's try this. And I kept sending information back. Well, how about this? Well, yeah, let's try, let's try this. You know, set, showing him different developments of the script. After a year and a half, I had permission from her. I had permission from Keith. Okay, now I got a year to put this thing up. So I put it up, and it didn't have the results. I wanted it. I needed it to have more blood and guts. It wasn't real. I didn't feel it was really driving at the heart and soul of Keith. I had to get it up in a certain time frame. I fulfilled that part of Pete Townsend's contract. Okay, now let's get back to rewriting. And that was four years ago. And over the past four years, I've probably written five or six scripts, getting help with directors and people that have written one-man shows. Okay, that that's okay. Have a stage reading of that, but that's no, that's not far enough. Let's all right. Thank you. Let's try this guy. All right, I've got an artistic director for a theater. They're telling me work with this guy. Try that. Uh, better, not not quite there. Uh, and then about six months ago, I got a hold of my current director because I knew I I had to set a date because I was on a deadline here. I had to set a date, and I got my current director, and we started... And that's Nancy Carlin. Yeah, Nancy Carlin. And we took all the scripts, and she gave me a couple of ideas. I went with one of the ideas, and uh, I read it to a guy who's been helping me produce this, and he hated it. (laughs) 
<laughs> but at that meeting, I've got a guy who's been helping me with acting. And at that meeting, the script he hated, the guy who's helping me with acting said, why don't you begin with act two? I love the beginning of act two. Why don't you start this with act two? And the producer who hated it, he and I looked at each other and the meeting finished. Then we went outside and we said, that's a great idea. Mm -hmm. I can't believe it. That, that's a great idea. Oh my God. That's a great beginning to this thing. So I took that. From the middle out. And then within three days, I started looking at all the five or six scripts I had. And, Wait a minute, this fits here. Oh, this fits here. That is the beginning. It's telling that you saw the beginning, the whole thing with Bob O'Reilly. Um, and oh yeah, I, I've got dialogue in the song there. I can use that with all the other songs. And, and I just staying up till 5 a.m. Wait, this is starting to work out. Writing, putting it together. God, I'm exhausted. Go to bed. I got to teach tomorrow. Wake up at 10. Work some more until 2 o'clock. Okay, let me go teach these kids. Okay, back to my apartment. Start writing at 9 o'clock. Up till 5 a.m. again. And then within three days, I sent it to the producer. I said, take a look at this. Take a look at it. And he looked at it. He said, wow. This, oh my God wow, this is really starting to happen. So I got together with the director again. She said, yeah, I like this. I got together with the acting coach. She said, this is really good. Why I want to see more of this. Okay, I'll write some more of that. Within like two or three weeks, we thought, okay, we've got a script here. Wow, we're really excited. You can see just the way I'm talking about it. Yeah. I showed it to one of the theater uh, artistic directors, Lisa Steinler of Z Space. She said, now this is really getting somewhere. Okay. All right, we're going to go with this. We're going to keep fashioning it. So we started workshopping it. Okay, this story, now nah, let's find another one. But it was good enough that the workshops were showing us it had bite to it, and people that had seen it in various stages said, oh, boy, you're on to something here. Now you're finding a play. Now you're finding a play. Because I was telling you earlier, I wanted to get a play that works as a play for people that don't know Keith Moon, don't know The Who, don't even care about music. It's a man's life, and it's a man's tragedy, mm -hmm. okay? And I wanted something that the average person could relate to, and the theme of not having, being so insecure within yourself that you end up destroying yourself because you don't think you're enough, and you feel you've got to do all these things and do all this dancing and playing around to please all these other people, even if it's at the expense of your own health and your own well-being. Because there is a lot of energy in this show. Let me touch on that a little bit. Because <laughs> you were doing, you're, it's a one-man show. You've got all the lines. You have to play drums, not just drums. You have to play Keith Moon drums. You have to remember the cues, the lines. You're onto a backtrack, which is unforgiving. Yeah. I can imagine the, uh, the expensive energy that you yeah. spend in the two hours of doing yeah. this. It's great you recognize that, especially... You're a musician? Yes. Yeah, you know backing tracks are unforgiving. Last time I did it with a live band, the producer Eugene Strawn has been brilliant in, you heard the recordings, mm -hmm. getting these recordings about three years ago. We flew Frank Symes up from LA, who's the Who's musical director, mm -hmm. to help us record these. Well, that was some pressure. <laughs> you think? Because <laughs> he worked with me on the other show, but now we're going to be recording these things. Okay, let's see how I stack up. And uh, it was a great weekend. Frank is brilliant at getting everything to come together. There's a reason he's the musical director for The Who and been the musical director for Roger Daltrey for, I think, 12 years now, maybe longer. Mm -hmm. He's written pieces for the L.A. Symphony. Mm -hmm. And he's written so many different movie and TV scores and so we got the backing tracks and I'm playing along to these backing tracks and the backing tracks sound great, but I got to play to them and they are unforgiving, you know? So there are certain tricks we've got going to help me with it. I, I can go into those if you want to hear them, but it's probably better for a magician to keep his uh, tricks right. concealed. Definitely. Um, so anyway, playing to the backing tracks, I play nine songs in the show and then we have the real me as the curtain call. But as hard as it is to do the show, it's much harder. Anybody out there who's played The Who and any drummer in a Who tribute band can tell you, after playing this music for a couple of hours, you're shot. You have nothing left. And the real drag is packing up your drums. <laughs> and not just drums, but two bass drums, 
eight toms and six cymbals and getting home and then having to lug it all up into your apartment, that's... Not fun. Oh, boy. Whoa. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, because there is the the full kit, as you just explained in detail, that sits on the stage. And you go back and play that uh, in various times through the show. And let me say, after seeing the show now, I had a great time. It it really was extraordinary. Uh, You come across as Keith Moon. And I got a different perspective of of Keith. Um, You know, I kind of felt that Keith's ADD played for him and against him. Um, But he also uh, suffered from maybe some other mental impairness that affected him. And, you know, the domestic uh, abuse is a big thing. Um, You touched on uh, the death of his uh, chauffeur, uh, which had to have really... uh, screwed yeah, every up. everybody said that was the turning point in his life from which he never returned that's that's a tough thing yeah. to, to do uh, yeah. especially when you know in some way you're culpable uh, yeah. to it uh, even yeah. though you know he was exonerated uh, yeah. it's it there's just no that's a that's a tough thing to do especially somebody who we all know uh, and the other guys have said it's just was such a sensitive uh, caring loving guy who just went off the rails and then felt that that was his job, as you presented mm-hmm. there. You got a standing ovation at the end of, <laughs> of this show today, and uh, I, I, I applaud you. Oh, I think thanks, it was fantastic. Thanks. And folks, diggers, you need to come see this show. If you are in <laughs> the San Francisco Bay Area, come to Marin, to the Marin Theater Company, to see Mick Berry's show. You you will not be disappointed. Thanks, Christian. So, so Mick, what what's next? I, I mean, how how long is this show going to go? Where are you going to take it? I want this show to run for three or four or five years. I think I got two to three years in me to do it. Um, I don't know who in the hell can take over the show after me. You know, I can tell you this. Nobody's going to be taking over this show until I get to really do what I want to do with it. Right. You know, right. Um, there are I'm sure there are other people out there that can perform the show. But it's been so, so, so much work getting it to this point. I've got a really good um, producer and, and a couple of guys who are really energized to take this forward. You know, right now I'm putting it on uh, through the help of Marin Theater Company and Z Space in San Francisco has been really instrumental in d- developing it. I think I mentioned Lisa Steinler. She's been really instrumental in developing it and coming on board to get me to this point. But we want to take it around to LA and I think London would be great and New York and I want to tour the country and get the word out. I know that the opening day, it was, it's nice of you to mention the standing ovation, but the crowd today was fabulous. It made it so easy because everybody was just getting all the jokes and really there with me. And as a performer, it just makes it so much easier. Oh, you feed off the energy of the audience. Yeah. And um, even though Saturday afternoon, uh, the crowd was just really injecting me with the energy to do it. So opening day, it was crazy because the place was packed and uh, I was... Get it. People were jumping up in the middle of the show and high-fiving me in the middle of the show, running onto the stage. You know, you, you can see the way the theater is. The seats are so close to the stage. Yeah, I'm, whoa, well, okay, this is kind of going well. Didn't expect that. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, we want to take it. Um, I think we're going to be doing another production in November. There's a good chance it's going to be in L.A. I don't know for sure. Um, and if we can extend this run, we want to. We need people to know about it. I know that there's a huge audience out there for this show, and I've tried to make it just for theater people. Last night, there was a board member of the Marin Theater Company that came and stuck around afterwards to tell me how much she loved it. So I know that just if you like a great play, that's what I've tried to do. But it starts there. Yeah, uh, there's no two ways. It's it's, yeah. it's it's the same with the Who. It starts with a great song. Pete yeah. wrote great songs. He had great His musicians songs to perform are phenomenal. it. But you know the fact is is that uh, you know to your point, it starts with a great play. It starts with a great script, a great Thanks. play, a good actor, Thanks. somebody who can do the role, which is 
a difficult role, inhabit the character, uh, and present um, something unique and uh, uh, and moving. Yeah, and that's what what we got today. Yeah, thanks. So. And Nancy, the director, has just been so terrific in guiding me to how to achieve these things. Because I'm looking at these scenes of going, how am I going to play that? What do I do? I you know, getting to this emotional place, and she'll tell me, you don't have to worry about that. You just just think about what you're talking about. You've written great words here. The imagery is there. Just think about it and get what you get. That's going to be, that's going to work, okay? Don't try to force it. And the acting coach, the dialogue coach I've got, Anthony Fusco, has been also, he's a brilliant actor. And he's been very helpful also in just guiding me in how to achieve things and giving me certain techniques. Look, you want to think about this, okay? You got something there. This is how you connect to that. And so we've got a great team on board here. It's hardly a one-man show. I'm the only one you see, but there are dozens and dozens of people connected to it. And really, the audience, every show is different. You know this as a musician. Every show is different. And today's show, the crowd was just great. It was a blast to perform in. And every show is different. That's what's so great about live performing. And Pete and Roger would tell you the same thing, you know? I you, saw it myself Wednesday yeah, night. Uh, yeah, you were in Tahoe. Yeah. 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 Well, Mick uh, Diggers, if you get a chance, and keep an eye on the Rock and Roll Archaeology Project, we will definitely let you know if and when this is about in in, uh, in the country. And that, let me just say the website, is that okay? Please. Yeah, KeithMoonTheRealMe.com. All information is there. All information will be there, hopefully, for many years to come. KeithMoonTheRealMe.com. Mick, yeah. thanks for being on Deeper Digs in Rock. We uh, look forward to keeping an eye out for you. Thanks, Christian. All right. So, yes, hell yes, as you gathered from the interview, I was pretty thrilled with the show. Mick got a standing ovation, and it was very much deserved. He inhabited the dear boy for the duration. And the music, oh yeah, a great selection of songs by The Who, with a live drummer on stage. How could I not join together with the band? Most important... I got a new, deeper understanding of Keith Moon, his struggles with addiction, domestic violence, the death of his chauffeur, Neil Bolin. As the show moved along, more and more, I got the feeling that Keith had a tiger by the tail. His Moon the Loon persona was just one part of who he was, but it took him over, and it ended up killing him. As we said in Episode 9 of our main podcast, I Can't Explain... While we can laugh at Keith Moon's legendary pranks and outrageous antics, there's a lot of sadness here. It really should have ended better for him. If you get a chance to catch Keith Moon, the real me, during its initial run here in the Bay Area, just go on and do it. You can thank us later. Nothing is final yet, but a national tour is in the works. We will keep you posted through social media, and there's a link to the website in the show notes. A big thank you to Mick Berry and the wonderful staff at the Marin Theater Company for a fantastic time. Until next time, let me leave you with a quote from the moon himself. I can't believe that person on the telly is really me. Keep up the rockin'. Herman's been gone for nigh on a year. He was you home yesterday, but he ain't here. Her man's been gone for nigh on a year. He was due home yesterday, but he ain't here.
looking for ways to help right the wrongs of social injustice? Oxfam America works with people in more than 90 countries to save lives, develop long-term solutions to poverty, and campaign for social change. And we do it with the help of our friends in the music world. The Beatles were Oxfam supporters back in the day. So were the Stones. And through the years, musicians and music fans have helped Oxfam push hard to work for a just world without poverty. Folks like Radiohead, Coldplay, Pearl Jam, DJ Shadow, and many, many more have encouraged their fans to join the effort. You can too. Go to OxfamAmerica.org to learn how you can help. Deeper Digs in Rocks, produced and hosted by Christian Swain. All sound design and incidental music by Busy Signal Studios. All quotes performed by actors unless noted. Playlists can be found at iTunes, Google Play, and Spotify. Please purchase these great and important tracks. All songs, clips, and references can be found on our show notes. Please visit rnrap.com for more information. It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more fantasy points.